This is John Halsman, and greetings from Washington. I'm in Sodom and Gomorrah in the flesh pots of the Imperial City, meeting with everyone we can as John Goodnight, my trusty sidekick, and I kick off the book tour with The Last Best Hope, A History of American Realism. And as I said to you, I thought it would be fun if you got a version of the speech that we gave to our Stand Together community, who are, of course, our proud sponsors of our book, as we try to change American politics, American history, by uniting the Republican Party around a new realist direction moving forward. And I thought I'd give you that speech um, just after it was given to the Stand Together community. And so without further ado, here's what I've been doing on my latest trip. And again, thanks to so many of you for sending your best wishes. Uh, that really does matter. And we're very excited to get the book out. And again, pre-ordering will start in September. We'll talk an awful lot more about that then. But do tell everyone, because of all the 15 books I've written, this is by far the most excited I've been, as Jen and I are going to hit the country and try to sell the country on this new way of thinking, which is actually a very old way of thinking. So without further ado, here goes. If we can change the Republican Party, we can change America. And if we can change America, we can change the world. That is the grandiose vision that we have for this book. It is to change what we're doing. It is an unapologetically political book. Many of the books I've written have been academic. The last couple have been political, but this one is almost entirely political in its focus, and it's designed to do nothing less than to unite the GOP going forward around a common realist foreign policy, using realism as a way to cement the, tar the party's two main factions together, the Jacksonian populist base of the party, and the more libertarian Jeffersonian wing to which John and I are members. And what is a Jeffersonian or Jacksonian? I suppose we have to start with that. And obviously, in any alliance, these are groups of people that have similarities and differences, that it's an alliance where they're going to agree on 85% of the total. But it's important to note that 15% difference, as well as to note the huge overwhelming reasons that they ought to be together in an alliance. Two basic things that are different, and I suppose the, the most fun one off the top is that, let's put it like this, that there's a social differentiation to these two groups. Jeffersonians, as their namesakes say, like populism without really coming from the people per se, much like Thomas Jefferson was not just a guy to the corner you had a beer with. On the other hand, the Jacksonian base of the party is underrepresented rather shamefully in Washington, uh, but this is the base of the party and will remain the base of the Republican Party for the foreseeable future. So it makes perfect sense that these two people, these two factions unify. Uh, a good way to put it in terms of an aphorism, or Jeffersonians like Johnny Cash, but Jacksonians are Johnny Cash. There's a difference. I love Johnny Cash's music, but I did not grow up as a sharecropper in Arkansas, and I'm well aware of that. So there's a social distinction between these two groups that actually makes their unity all the more compelling. Uh, another difference is one of emphasis. While both are very much believers in individual liberty and American exceptionalism, Jeffersonians tend to worship the First Amendment. Jacksonians tend to put their chips around the Second Amendment. Jeffersonians care more about freedom of speech as their preeminent emphasis. Jacksonians think more about the right to bear arms as a fundamental and inalienable right. It's not that they don't agree that the other one matters, but there's a difference in emphasis as there is. Um, and so that's another factor that has to be taken into account as we look forward. But for these niggling differences, the really interesting thing is that the best thing that Donald Trump ever did as a disruptor was to disrupt, really, the, the governing factions of the Republican Party. And what he did was to throw the neoconservative 
faction of the party, which had really led an unfriendly takeover of the party. As our book talks about, you can trace realist thinking back to the Federalist Party of the 1780s, 1790s. Certainly for all the time of the Republican Party, we have a great chapter in the book on Lincoln and William Seward, which is when the Republican Party was founded in the late 1850s, all the way to now. And really the aberration in this was the neoconservatives who, for some reason, thought that social engineering was part of what Republicans were for, that as I remember saying to them at the time, you're against social engineering at home in America when I actually know a little bit about Americans, but you're for socially engineering Iraq when none of you know anything about Iraq. Well, they've now been removed and, 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 and really demoted, and you can see that from people like Robert Kagan rightfully fleeing to the Democratic Party, which is a believer in social engineering both at home and abroad, so it's a consistent position. But the best thing that Trump did is that by leaving the two remaining factions of the Republican Party are ripe for alliance, the Jeffersonians and the Jacksonians, now that the neoconservatives have either been demoted or chose on their own to flee to the Democratic Party where they belong in the first place. And so what do you have coming out of this? You have the fact that they've been realists all along without knowing that this is a glue that can unite them. Both the Jacksonians and the Jeffersonians have been against the last 20 years of the Washington foreign policy blob, the establishment, which never met an intervention it didn't like. They've been against interventions on the right, neoconservative right, wars of choice, such as occurred in Iraq, and they've been against humanitarian interventions on the, on the left, where the stakes have been so low that that was the reason the left wanted to intervene, which makes no sense to a realist at all. And this was true in Somalia, Haiti, Haiti, Bosnia, Kosovo, and even to an extent later in Afghanistan, where the strategic realities were lost in favor of worrying about the social conditions in Afghanistan as though we could change 3,000 years of history in the next 10. And so both Jeffersonians and Jacksonians, without knowing it, have been against the prevailing establishment blob in D.C., be they intervening on the right or the left. And this makes them ripe to do even more together because instinctively they found themselves on the same side over these key issues. Um, but there's more than that that unites them. Both have broader suspicions of concentrated power, Jeffersonians and Jacksonians. They don't even like Washington, where the people are elected, to over-centralize, over-bureaucratize the administrative state, leaving the country to Dr. Fauci. Uh, they're against all of this. And if they're against having Americans over-centralize them, imagine what Jeffersonians and Jacksonians think about international unelected foreign technocrats telling them what to do at the UN, the IMF, the World Bank, NATO, or with the Kyoto Protocol, where we hem ourselves in and let the Lilliputians tie Gulliver up. This is a part of the party that, if you think of Revolutionary War flags, would have the rattlesnake saying, don't tread on me. They do not want others to... to profane in any way Americans or America's individual liberty, their freedom to act in any way they see fit. And that's true both centrally in America and even more true internationally. And this unites them instinctively without anybody talking about it. And both also don't want America to become more like the rest of the world. This is exactly the opposite of the neocons. For a Jeffersonian or a Jacksonian, the base ob objective of U.S. foreign policy is to, to defend American values at home rather than extend them abroad. And this is the exact opposite of the neocons who are obsessed about extending American values abroad, not worrying so much what happens at home. Jeffersonians and Jacksonians, like neocons, think America is unique, but because it's unique, 
they are fighting to keep it that way because if the state gets too big, it becomes a security state and we lose the individual liberties which are what make America such an amazing place. And so they have this opposite view and they are trying to defend American rights and so they're very wary about trying to join the rest of the world. They would be the opposite of saying if only we were more like Europe to the ears of an American Jeffersonian or Jacksonian, this is heresy. Why in the world would we want to be a place that grows at less than 1%, has huge immigration problems, and doesn't assume, we think we have a problem with immigration? These people assimilate no one and uh, don't have any children and are a museum. From our ears, this is taking away the very specialness that is America. Because of all this, they define, both Jacksonians and Jeffersonians, American national interests quite narrowly that you can define, which is what the left is always getting away from. Oh, we can't define what our interests are. Th this, again, makes no sense to a Jacksonian or a Jeffersonian. You can define very specifically and must define very specifically what are primary American interests because that's the only time you act. And we can argue about what they are, but if you don't use that rubric to look at the world, you're going to do everything. And if you do everything, you care about nothing. And they are all about caring about the things that matter. And so a very strict definition. So they agree on all this before we even begin the process. This is an organic process we are merely realizing is there and are pushing along what already exists for at least 85% of the agenda. And that, frankly, might be a little low. So if you believe me that, that realism is the glue that's going to unite the Republican Party moving forward, that our two primary factions already agree on this, what are we actually talking about? It has to be more specific than that. There's no better way to look at this than as my political risk firm does through using history, the received living experience of the last 3,000 years. Why our firm has the best call rate in the business, as opposed to so many others who are awful, is that we are not theoretical. This is life as it's actually been lived by Americans for the last 250 years. This is grounded organically in the American story. And out of this story, again, because we're in Judeo-Christian culture, everything is in threes, tens, forties, and hundreds. Well, ours is a ten. We have nine tenets, and then if you agree with them, the tenth commandment is how to operationalize all these things. If you agree with what we're saying, how would you then deal with a world where we deal with China, Ukraine, the Middle East, trade, all the issues that confront us in our new age of insecurity? But first, we have to define the precepts from our own story that really highlight what American realism is about. The first one is that alliances should be entered into only when primary US interests are advanced. That alliances or treaties should only be entered into when primary American interests are advanced. And the story we tell is Hamilton and Washington and the contentious argument over the Jay Treaty where Washington and Hamilton said, let's side with the greatest superpower of the age, the British. And at the same time, let's, uh, which was not popular at all, let's ignore our old French Revolutionary War allies because they're no use to us. If we side with the British, we get a Western frontier that no longer is egged on with Indian wars. The British are not subsidizing the Indians to fight us, and the United States can continue to expand. In all of American history, there have only been three major geopolitical changes. Two of them are early on. The first was by Washington and Hamilton over this very point. When you have coming out of this, you have that if we can make the Western frontier secure by siding with the British, and think about a national interest this is, we will dominate North America. That's all we have to do. Because we, the only people who can stop us are the Plains Indians, the Canadians, and the Mexicans. And however brilliant a general Crazy Horse is, they're not going to stop us. 
So if we sign this treaty, the United States invariably will come to dominate the North American continent for all time. I can't think of a more primary interest than that. And so this was an example of Hamilton and Washington using realism, not their emotions, to side with their hated enemy against their former friend because it furthered the American cause. And that was the first precept and remains true to this day. The second precept to look at is no more stupid wars. That the idea that you fight wars of choice is lunacy. And this is the second geostrategic innovation. Here we look at John Quincy Adams and the Monroe Doctrine. But more importantly, and I think what's interesting, because this is well-furrowed ground, we look at what happened before. And remember that after Napoleon, the Spanish Empire falls apart when Napoleon takes over Spain. All the colonies in South America revolt. Uh, they, they set up nascent democracies. They didn't stay democracies for long, but they set up nascent democracies, the Bolivarian Republic, etc. And there was a huge push from Henry Clay, the neocon of his time, to have the United States intervene down there. And John Quincy Adams, our greatest Secretary of State of the 19th century, uh, said this is, this is insane. What we want is less European involvement. If we go inside with the revolutionaries against what's left of the Spanish, after Napoleon's gone, the Spanish may come back. Then we're going to get more European involvement in the Western Hemisphere, not less. And this is starting a stupid war because with the Monroe Doctrine, which the British Navy secured for their own reasons, their own interests, the, the British went along with his view that let's get Europe out of the Western Hemisphere. Rather than starting a war that may involve them, let's do less with them. And then the Western Hemisphere will fall like North America did to the United States as the dominant power. Who's going to dominate the Western Hemisphere if not the United States? Mexico? Guatemala? Honduras? Of course the United States will be dominant, but only if Europe does not interfere in it, making it, as, like Europe is, a source of endless wars between small countries constantly fighting each other. And this Quincy Adams idea is the second great innovation geostrategically in American thinking. But no more stupid wars remains fundamental to what we're talking about going ahead. So that's the second one to keep in mind. Number three is to act or not to act uh, militarily should be strictly determined by national interests and not emotion. And this is one of my favorite chapters in the book. We look at Lincoln's famous quote about the, during the Civil War, the Union almost fighting a war with the, with the British, when Lincoln says you know, that we have to be very careful about this one war at a time is Lincoln's comment. But more interestingly is William Seward, Lincoln's brilliant Secretary of State, probably the second greatest Secretary of State of the 19th century, getting us out of fighting a war despite the determined neocon efforts of Captain Wilkes, who comes across, by the way, as a prototype for Captain Ahab and Moby Dick, and he does have the monomania down to a part. Wilkes is an interesting guy. He actually discovered Antarctica, but he almost started a war by, in effect, kidnapping Confederates who were aboard a British ship heading to London to try to secure recognition. Wilkes kidnaps them. The Union says, isn't this great? And Seward then has to climb down to avoid a war with the superpower of the day, which would have destroyed Union chances to win the Civil War, which is, after all, the whole point, keeping unity of the United States. And so Seward realizes that you have to get out of this and that there are many cases where you don't fight a war, where fighting a war is actually ruinous to what you're trying to do a fact that has escaped the neoconservatives, but thank God, not William Seward. And so that's the third point. The fourth point is a very interesting chapter on the Lion of Idaho, William Bora, who said, sovereignty is real in everything. 
Again, this is the opposite of the foreign policy blob that doesn't believe in sovereignty existing, uh, despite the fact that all the great powers in the world very much think it does. Let's ask the Chinese, the Indians, the Brazilians, the people in UAE, the Saudis, the Turks, if it exists. Basically, everyone rising thinks it exists, plus the United States. But for some reason, the blob like to think that sovereignty doesn't exist and the world is just too complicated to make decisions. And I refuse to wallow in postmodernistic despair. Um, and, and Bora got this right, that while Woodrow Wilson is trying to sell American sovereignty to the League of Nations because he's bored with wanting America and wants to set up a global government, governance, Bora, a very good lawyer and a better orator than even Wilson, refuses to give way. And when he realizes that America might have to send troops to fight for British and French imperial interests, which is the last thing Bora as a good Westerner wants to do, he said, we are giving up the principles of our revolution to help a bunch of unelected empires subjugate local people. And that's not really what America should be about. And so sovereignty and keeping America having the right to make its own decisions for its own people, the essence of democratic thought is a stirring chapter. And rather than Woodrow Wilson being the hero, as he's so often painted by left-wing historians who are to the left of Trotsky, Really, when you look at the story, we kind of Quentin Tarantinoized it and try to bring Bora back. Bora's the hero because he cares about Americans and what's going on with them. And so that would be a vital point, I think, going forward. Uh, the fifth point is America must never shirk from fighting wars, but only as a last resort. The problem with the neocons is that they say it's a first resort. For the neocons who love the, using the military, however much it harms actual people and doesn't achieve things, the military is a hammer, and so every problem becomes a nail. The problem with this reality is that as a last resort, of course you must fight. We're realists. It's an anarchic world full of people who are jealous of American prerogatives. And there's a time that you have to fight for that. But you must know the difference between whether you're fighting Milosevic, who was utterly unimportant, or Hitler, who was a revolutionary figure determined to upend the world. Many more times than not, you're fighting Milosevic. There are very few revolutionary powers out to upend the United States. I mean, you can argue in the 20th century, Stalin, Hitler, Mao, maybe Imperial Japan, maybe the Kaiser. I'm out of people. Okay, that's it. Almost every other fight is secondary and doesn't merit it. But you must know, and Jacksonians are particularly good on this, you must know when to fight. Because when you fight, as Jacksonians know, you must fight to win. But you do it less, far less and take it far more seriously, because that is the vital reality. And FDR uh, getting us into World War II step by step with the stakes not being higher, they couldn't be higher, actually stumbled upon the doctrine, the third geostrategic change of the American era, and the one we still live in, by the way, that's still relevant, which is, is simple. If you look at the world historical map, Eurasia is the dominant island in the world, and everything else is an island off of that. And most military theorists have, have taken this as almost axiomatic. Everyone agrees about this. And the reality is simple, that if you dominate either Europe or Asia, half of this world landmass, you can dominate the world. All the people live there, all the resources there, all the ports are there. You will dominate ultimately the rest of the world. And Roosevelt figured this. So the Roosevelt rule, which must still be in effect for the world we live in, is that basic American foreign policy follows on British policy which did this when they were the dominant power for just Europe. Now that the world's more globalized, it has to be for Eurasia. And that's if anybody is trying to dominate Europe or Asia, 
they are a they are a primary threat to the United States and must be watched and must be deterred and ultimately must even be fought over if they threaten to dominate either part of this great landmass. Everything else is pretty manageable. So if you have this view, Roosevelt would very clearly say Ukraine is not worth fighting for because it doesn't threaten the European aspect of the Eurasian landmass. China might be worth fighting for because it does threaten that. So the idea there isn't a yardstick is ridiculous. We've had a beautiful yardstick that the book lays down as one of our pivotal chapters between 1939 and 1941. And the Roosevelt rule is still very much in effect. But you must know whether you're fighting Milosevic or Hitler. Um, so that would, be, that would be an absolutely fundamental rule going ahead. The other thing to look at that gets lost in all this, that, that both Jeffersonians and Jacksonians would agree, are that the specific needs of the American people must be the touchstone of foreign policy. And trust me, as a life member of the Council on Foreign Relations, these are words that don't come up at all. But this is exactly what foreign policy should be based on. The needs of the real people of this country as they're living. And no one explains this better than Dwight Eisenhower, who spent the 50s fighting off efforts to start nuclear war over Kwamoy and Matsu or Indochina or Korea. And in all the cases, he kept saying through both his brilliant Cross of Iron speech and his speech on the military industrial complex that every bomber we create is a failure. It means we're not taking care of the needs of Americans. And he listed it's worth 10,000 schools, 7,000 miles of road, that there's only a certain amount of money, a certain number of limits. And if we spend our money setting up a perpetual war state, as he put it, and this is a five-star general, the army saying this, it, it, that if we have a military industrial complex that always looks to war, we won't take care of our people internally. Most countries die from within historically. It's not the outside people who destroy the Roman Empire. It's what happened internally that destroys it. Eisenhower reminds us that this must always be a rule for us moving ahead. The next rule is that the American national interests, as we said, if narrowly de defined, actually show us what winning looks like. We can define what winning is in any specific sense. And we use the great example of Jack and Bobby Kennedy in the Cuban Missile Crisis, where they kept two key interests at, at heart. And JFK obsessively, if you listen to the tapes, where he talks about what's going on, says two things. One, the missiles have got to be gotten out of, out of Cuba because geostrategically it ruins the balance of power. And two, we have to avoid a nuclear war. And everyone else goes off on a tangent. While this is going on, the Chinese invade India and everybody's running around like a headless chicken. And uh, Jack Kennedy says to Bobby, a line we use in my house, where he says one crisis at a time, Bobby. Meaning it's, not a, it's very important, but it's not important enough for us to move our focus off nuclear Armageddon and the Soviets destabilizing the world, so we'll let other people handle that. And two, unlike Curtis LeMay and the Joint Chiefs who are obsessed about getting those missiles out and don't really care if there's a nuclear war, which sounds like Dr. Strangelove to me, Kennedy said, the problem with these guys is that if they're right, well, they're wrong, we'll all be dead and no one will be able to tell them. And you have to keep these two points. And why Kennedy was successful was he never moved away from this concept of the national interest, which defined for him what he should do in terms of both strategy and tactics. Um, the next one is, is simple. The United States has to be prepared to do deals with the devil. Because we do not live in, in a world uh, that is run by a beneficent global government, some of the people we have to work with, we're not going to want dating our daughters. Uh, my favorite example here is you can't just do foreign policy with the Canadians. Nobody got this more right than Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger, who did a deal with the Ted Bundy of international relations, Mao Zedong, at the height of the Cultural Revolution, 
who at the same time pivoted away from the Soviets to side with the Americans, thereby allowing the United States in major way to win the Cold War. And it never occurred to them to stop, despite the fact that they knew exactly who they were dealing with in the same way we worked with Stalin in World War II, quite rightly, the Charles Manson of his era. We worked with him to defeat Hitler. You have to keep in mind that the world is full of people that are unsavory, and it's just fine morally to deal with them if you further the interests of the American people. That has to be the yardstick. And we have to talk to people other than the Canadians if we hope to have a grown-up foreign policy. The final precept that realism leads us to believe is that we underestimate America as example. The reason all the nuclear scientists in the 1930s fled to the United States wasn't because they wanted to get more frequent flyer miles with BA. The reason is that it was a wonderful place to live that had freedom, a free, booming capitalist society, a stable democratic government with civil liberties, and was a nice place to live. We underestimate America as example. You don't get that by trying to promote democracy at the barrel of a gun. You get that by doing better internally. You do that by treating your own people better and having America be a magnet that draws people to the country, that we get the best people from around the world who want to join us in the United States, that we are so obviously a better example than being Hitler, Stalin, or Mao, that even if you don't think we're perfect, we are relatively better than the people that we are against. If now the example is China. Would you rather live in Xi Jinping's China and have no freedom or live in a fractious America for all our problems with freedom? Anyone who says they would rather live in China than the United States has been sitting in the safety of a French cafe for too long. And we have to absolutely promote this. No one did this better than Ronald Reagan, who discussed America in unabashedly romantic terms as a shining city on a hill, as an example. That isn't one where you go forth looking for sea monsters to destroy, but one where you preserve that citadel as a beacon to the world. We, under, we talk about soft power all the time without ever knowing what we're talking about. That soft power, that matters. America is example. And that must guide us going forward. So if you believe all these precepts that I've laid out, you have a clear roadmap to deal with the world. And most importantly, a roadmap that unites the Republican Party around realism moving ahead is the dominant foreign policy view of the GOP and hopefully of the country as a whole. The stakes for this simply could not be higher at the moment. Because to quote Lincoln, which is the point of the book and the touchstone, we must either nobly save or meanly lose the last best hope of Earth. America is still the last best hope of Earth. To protect it and guide it in this new age of insecurity, realism is, was, and remains the answer. Thank you very much.